Hi, and welcome to the Unique Perspective Show, broadcast live on Hakol Radio, powered by the Montanithasar. Every person, and in particular, every Jew, is special and unique in his or her own way, contributing to society with their very own flavor. My name is Yehuda Blonder, your show host, and I was born with a rare medical condition called familial dysautonomia, also known as FD. Growing up and overcoming multitudes of medical challenges shaped the person I am today, as well as gave me a rather unique perspective on life. On this show, we will be sitting down with amazing people with unique perspectives in life who will give us a glimpse into their lives and what makes them who they are. Come along with me for the ride on the Unique Perspective Show on Hako Radio. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Unique Perspective Show. On today's show, we are thrilled and honored and we have Matis Miller on the show. Matis is the founder of the Center for CBT of New Jersey. He's also a certified cognitive behavioral therapist and author of the parenting book, Uncontrollable Child. This week's episode is in memory of my dear friend, Rafal Yaakov Yisrael Ben Ron. Please help me in welcoming Matis Miller to the show. Welcome, and how are you? I'm wonderful, Yudalev. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for jumping on. So let's jump right in. Where did you grow up, Matis? So I grew up in Farakway, New York. Okay. Um, that's really where I spent most of my upbringing. Uh, I went to Yeshiva there. I went to Yeshiva Farakway. Um, that's still considered, you know, my Yeshiva in many ways and my okay. Rabbeim, so I'm still very much connected. Um and really, even when I got married, I actually lived there for a year or so prior oh, to wow. my... Yeah. So you went to Yeshiva Rockway from elementary school all the way through, or you where did you go for elementary? No, I, I uh, elementary school, I went to South, South Shore Yeshiva, which is on okay. uh, Long Island. It's in Hewlett, uh, New York. Um, my father was very close. He, he actually passed away a couple of years ago by Hanina Hertzberg, who was the Manaho. So had a very close connection, so he decided to send. Uh, I have two brothers, so all of us went there. And then for uh, high school, I went to Shufrakway, and I stayed through till base Majish. So I left for a bit, came back there again for base Majish, even learned there a little bit after I got married. So very closely connected to the Yeshiva. Okay. Wow. Um, so growing up, it was whenever, but um, I don't know if you want to get into this, but. Um, how did you get involved with Chai Lifeline? Yeah, no, I'm willing, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really talk about it, like, publicly, <laughs> per se, but you delay, we have a, re- a very special connection going many, many, back many, many years. Um, and it's nothing to hide. Um, right. But it's certainly uh, something I'm willing to share. So um, at age 17, uh, mm-hmm. right before I, right after I turned 17, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Wow. Um, and at that time, I, uh, you know, I was sick for about a year, chemo, radiation, and uh, High Life One was involved, you know, just 
anything they could do to help the family. I remember one time I was really sick and they said, you know, could we send uh, Avram Fried over? And wow. I think I was too sick at the time, but you know, this is going back a lot, many years ago. Um, so, uh, and, and you know, and some involvement in the hospitals, obviously they had their staff. Uh, and then when it came to the summertime, um, you know, I was a regular yeshiva boy. I had my friends right. in 11th grade. A lot of my, my Rebbe actually in 11th grade went up to Avram Chaim Heller at the time. I don't think it's existent anymore. Okay. That was a, that was a, like a team camp. Um, and they invited me to come up there with them. And Chai Leifon was like pushing Camp Simcha. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I just, I wasn't so interested. My parents weren't particularly interested. Um, and uh, I even actually went up for, I think, a week or two to the first part of the summer to Camp Heller. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they were, I don't remember exactly who, who it was at the time. Uh, maybe Zahava Farman, I don't remember. It was unrelenting. Um, and I said, okay, I'll give this a shot. And it changed my life in many ways. So that was at, at 17. Baruch Hashem, you got over it, but then you came back as staff or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, the first year uh, I was there as camper, uh, and then the next year I already was transitioning to sort of, uh, sort of a staff, right. and, and then continued for about I think in total around seven years, and getting very involved in high life fun as well, and at the different events and retreats and things like that. I I, I remember one thing. In the infirmary, we always called Matis Millers and Sadekas. How did that song come to be? I have no idea. Maybe it was you. Maybe. It was not me. It definitely wasn't me. It was interesting. So that was the job. I had a really close connection um, with Rachel Katz, who was the head nurse okay. at the time. Was she and, your head nurse when you were in camp? Yes. Yeah, she was the head nurse when I was in camp. And I don't know how it happened. Like maybe she, she suggested it or, or it just came up and it sort of became like my place. And in a way I loved it because I didn't have like one camper that I got to interact with. I got to interact with, with everybody and connect to right. everybody. And, and, you know, I enjoyed the atmosphere and I didn't have a lot of responsibilities there. Um, so I really became connected to, to many of the other campers and staff. Um, and I don't know where that started. Um, you know, I don't know if it started with Sadiq and then became with Sadiq. By the way, just so you know, after that, I'm not with Sadiq or Sadiq anymore. <laughs> you know, once I left camp, you know, I'm just right. Uh, no, most of us, you know, we grow into a Sadiq. I like started at Sadiq and then, you know. A hundred percent. Um, but I, I'm not sure, but it was, it was interesting. It became this whole, this whole thing, this whole chain, I, you know, as you remember, uh, you delayed. You were part of it too, I would imagine, right? Um, I was not part of the making of the chant. No, I was singing the the chant a lot, but yeah. Um. So after that, you, what did you do during the year, and what made you go to school to become what you have become today? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, and. You know, a lot of people say, you know, you go through your experience and because of your experience, you want to help people and things like that. So it was interesting for me. I don't think I was thinking about this field prior. But what I think I didn't notice is, is that through that experience that I have certain, you know, 
Coho's capability, ability to connect, to speak to people. I mean, so many, I mean, we became friends. There were so many of the other campers and staff and really, you know, just being with people during a time of pain. So it wasn't so much like, oh, I wanted to get back. It was more like, wait, maybe I'm, maybe this is something that I have a strength. Maybe it's something I can do um, to give to other people. So I was sitting and learning Yeshiva, but it obviously floated in my head. And I actually, early on, I had the opportunity, and that was through High Lifeline, to get a connection um, to Ramatisio Salman, not well, but a tremendous cost to have a connection. And I brought it up with him. And I, I was shocked, but he pretty much said, you know, you've come from this, and now it's your time to, I brought the Rash, Vanlish Rabinu, you know, that Misha means to draw out, and that became his tafkin. And at a young age, I'm being told by a gada, like, this is this is a tafkin of yours. And that was pretty powerful. So I continued to do Shiva, um, and I was able to get a BTL, and, and, and then I went off to school. Um, it's interesting, during that time, I think, like, oh, I'm going to be involved with High Lifeline, and I'm going to continue this. But, right. uh, you know, Hashem knows your path. So my, my path, you know, yeah. went to a different uh, area in the field. So now, Baruch Hashem, um, you're married, you're doing this, this thing. Um, what what do you exactly do in the field of social work? Yeah, so I primarily do clinical work. Um, mm-hmm. And early on in my career, um, I became interested in more uh, evidence-based practice, like cognitive behavioral therapy, and later trained in uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, as well as schema therapy uh, and other modalities. And it's more of like a structured, goal-oriented therapy. And I really focused on clinical work, anxiety, depression, mood disorders, personality issues, even relational issues. So um, I, that was really a specialty. And I went through a lot of training and certification in all those areas. And then after a number of years, I, I actually built a practice based on uh, this, you know, a lot of the methodology and, and perspectives. And I built a group private practice, the Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy in New Jersey. We have about seven clinicians in our group private wow. uh, practice now. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, I started teaching and lecturing and supervising and doing things like that. And then um, just different projects and different things that I've gotten interested in along the way. Um, so most recently, a couple of years ago, I actually uh, thought it would be very beneficial um, to write a, a parenting book for emotionally okay. for parents who are struggling with emotionally sensitive children based on DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, which was published through New Harbinger Publisher. So that was that was a journey. Uh, that process took a took a few years. Um, and so now I have my practice and I do individual work. I also do a lot of one-time consultations. People come from all over just in terms of guidance and what path they should take. And um, lastly, I'm actually in the process of uh, hopefully in a few months, opening an intensive outpatient partial hospital program in Lakewood for oh, wow. people who struggle with emotional difficulties. And I believe it's going to be the first uh, culturally sensitive IPPHP program. Wow. Um, I, I, I just want to jump in. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think you, you, um, when my, I had, a, I have a sister that went to social work school. I think you were, uh, you guided her or you 
during her school years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, yes, you're not mistaken. Um, uh, she was really great. I worked, um, I did some teaching and supervising in LCSC, which is a, a local clinic in Lakewood, a, a rather large clinic. Uh, and they have, I think they have much more staff. But at the time, this was a number of years back, there were, you know, 30, 40 clinicians. And I used to come one, once a week um, and do some training and teaching and also do some supervising. So your sister was part of that cohort. So uh, we had the opportunity to interact and she really appreciated my work and we had that connection. Yeah. We didn't talk too much about our connection, but <laughs> uh, we had that connection. So really, she like, comes over to me and says, you know, my brother is, I'm like, I'm like, okay, you know, I ready, uh, any, anything I can help you with, I'm here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, and I appreciate that because, you know, now I'm in the field, you know, about 20 years, you know, having wow. the opportunity to not only help people, but to help people who help people is really right. special. It's like, you know, yeah. it's, you can spread. And so, um, but I'm sure your sister's doing great stuff. I'm no doubt. Sure. <laughs> um, so this hospital type, what, what does it take to get it off the ground? Yeah, so in in every state, you need to get licensure in that state. So it's okay. it's for people who are coming either three hours a day or up to five hours a day of therapy. So you know, people who go to regular therapy, outpatient, come once a week, twice a week. This is for people who need more intensive, and it's only goes usually people are there from maybe six weeks, sometimes to three months. It's a very short term, um, but you need to get licensed from the state. Uh, in order to provide that service. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty rigorous process um, because they need to, you know, vet you and see your policies and procedures in the facility. And, um, you know, so we're still, and then there's sort of a waiting line uh, and then they come down and they, you know, they have different uh, marking cross uh, walks along the way. So, um, you know, we're at the point where we're almost, ready for licensure uh okay. we Great. you know like everything we had a facility and that least fell apart and we're actually about to uh hopefully today or tomorrow actually uh wow. finish up our lease on the new space um and then it's you know you have to get the staffing and develop the programming and you get it you have to find the proper software and this you know and the administrative staff and build a team so yeah, it's 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 a process, and even just getting licensure can take, you know, anywhere from seven months to a year and a half. Wow. Does it have to be like any specific hospital, or it's it's its own thing? Yeah, it's not like a hot when it, you know partial hospital is just the term they use for the full day program. It's like because you're not actually sleeping there, and it's not, um, and it, it you know yes you have a you know, a psychiatrist on staff uh, to manage meds or a nurse practitioner. But um, no, it's really, you know, you can take a space, you know, uh, we're taking about to start our program about 5,000 square feet of space oh, wow. in the medical building. And, um, and there are certain requirements uh, in terms of the space, in terms of uh, the programming. But uh, yeah, you can really develop it on your own, uh, as long as it doesn't have to be affiliated with any uh, specific hospital. We will be right back after words from our sponsor. Is your computer running slower than molasses? Are you desperate to salvage important data from your hard drive? Let's face it, 
IT work can be a nightmare at times. Whether it entails virus removal, server or network setup, networking and cloud backup, or simple laptop and desktop ongoing IT support. At VentureTech, we understand how essential your systems are to your daily life, and we take the time to accurately diagnose every technical issue you're experiencing. Call us now for a consultation by dialing 347-603-0033 or shoot us an email to info at VentureTechComputers.com. And we are back on the Unique Perspective show. What actually made you decide to move to Lakewood? That's a of great, all places. That's a great question. And that's a little bit connected to you, actually. <laughs> a, little, a little bit connected. Um, so I was actually, uh, for, I, I started out in Frankway when I got married. And then about a year and a half in, I, my wife was from out of town, from St. Louis, Missouri. Really oh, out wow. of town. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she, just Farrakhan wasn't working. Um, she wanted to get her degree. At that point, I wasn't really, I finished my degree. I wanted to maybe go to out-of-town Colorado and was looking around, see if there are options. There weren't so many great options in the end. And um, we had some connection. We knew people in, in Waterbury, Connecticut. And we decided to move out there. And my wife was going to go to a good Catholic uh, OT school. Wow. <laughs> So we moved, we moved to Connecticut and we were there probably like three and a half years. Oh, and wow. yeah, and we, we were really happy. I mean, overall, we liked the community. It was a warm community, a small community. Um, it was close enough that I could visit home, uh, you know, and family. At the same time, I, I was working mostly within the secular world for about three and a half years. I worked in residential, I worked in outpatient, uh, some different jobs. And I, I really wanted to work with the cloud. I wanted to work with the front people. I mean, that's really where I, why I went into the field and I thought it was time. Right. So I was looking into different communities and um, my sister and brother-in-law uh, were newlywed and living in Lakewood in an apartment. And I believe uh, on the block of one of your brothers. Um, oh, cause it's, it, your sister is married to my brother's brother-in-law. Your sister is married to your brother's brother-in-law, exactly. Meaning your sister. Yes. My yeah. sister, Kaisar, is married to Mori. Yeah. And right. he, uh, your brother married... His, his sister. His sister, right. So there's our connection, right? Mm -hmm. So we went there for a job, this, and uh, we're in this, this small base. This is going back, I, I think it's now 15 years. Um, I think so. Um, and... They said, come to Lakewood, come to Lakewood. Lake like, Lakewood? I, said, I don't know. I never <laughs> I didn't learn at BMG. First of all, Lakewood is not what it is today, that's for sure. But I, I just didn't know if that was the right place for me. Um, but they got this bug in my head, like move to Lakewood and uh, like research. It was funny. I was recently reminded, I don't know if you know, Shalom Stein, Sam Stein. He's, okay. he's probably he's, he's an Askin in Lakewood. He's a big bald stalker. And I know him from Frockwood. I'm like, that's the only person like I really do well in Lakewood. I remember calling him like, you know, is there like regular people? Like, well, so like Lakewood, you know, was mostly a Shiva community. So he said, no, no. Yeah, yeah, come. At that point, I actually went to Mashkiach and asked him if I should come. And, and Ramon said, yes, I should come. He actually invited me for Shabbos that week. And unfortunately, I actually had an emergency gallbladder surgery that week. Wow. So I wasn't able to come. But, uh, I thought there were a handful of therapists here, like really a handful. Some of them are even living here now. 
uh, or working here anymore. I mean, there was like Shimon Russell and, you know, who moved to Eretz Yisrael and the LCSC was around and that I got involved with them. Chemed was just opening up then. Um, but there were really maybe a handful of therapists here, certainly, you know, male therapists. Um, and now there are hundreds, wow. I don't know, maybe thousands of therapists here. Um, and we made the move. We rented for the first year. Um, it wasn't easy on my wife, that's for sure. It was definitely a change. Coming, um, from, coming from St. Louis to Waterbury to, to Lakewood. To, right? to Lakewood. <laughs> Um, and it was interesting, but then she got used to it. I think in the last two years, she's back to not used to it anymore because like <laughs> post COVID Lakewood became Borough Park. Exactly. Um, but that's how I ended up here. And, and, you know, I've been here a long time and I've worked with many people and I had an opportunity to build my practice and be part of the community and Hashem, I'm really, really grateful. And I actually remember I even got an opportunity to be at, at your CM in Lakewood. Yes. Yes. Uh, during COVID, actually, during the height of COVID. That was the height of COVID. Okay. Yeah. That was but, um, in how long have you been living in Lakewood for? So Lakewood, I, th I think it's about um, probably 14 and a half years. So in that 14 and a half years, it changed a lot. Like beyond a lot. <laughs> I don't know if a lot describes it. What was the biggest thing you've seen change in Lakewood to the social work world? Yeah, I guess if I say simplistically, I think just because the astounding growth and the need for mental health services has just grown astronomically. Like there, there's just such a need um, because there are so many more children and so many more families and adults and even elderly that have moved here over right. the last few years. So uh, before there was a need somewhat, and obviously, you know, there is some research, we know that post COVID there was an increase in uptick and anxiety and other struggles. Um, but I would say, you know, and obviously diverse population, you know, uh, we talked about in the onset, it was, I'm not saying that, of course, there was people working and there was the yeshiva community, but now you really have, you know, the yeah, Hasidish community that has moved in and all different types of, you know, you know whether it's Vishnitz or, or Bells or Satmer, and, you know, that's been very significant. I, I mean, even down my block, I, very infrequently you would see someone with a strimal or a spadek, and it's now... It's if infrequently you see someone with a, a down hat, you know? Wow. Yeah, in my area, at least. Um, you know, that's exaggerating a bit, but there's been huge change in population. And as a result, you know, even need for Yiddish speaking. And um, so I, I think that that's been, and it's just hard to meet that need. And, and, and the level of crisis, it's like the infrastructure. You know, you talk about every community grows in Lakewood, they talk about they need to figure out the roads and the traffic. And we also figure out how to provide better prevention and intervention and effective, helpful uh, therapeutic services for, for the needs of our community. Um, so I think I think that was just big. And we see different, I don't know if it's different problems, but a lot more just, and I don't know if it's a lot more because people say, well, today there's a lot more problems. I don't know, I didn't live a hundred years ago, so I can't tell you whether it was more or less. 
Uh, it's definitely been a change also more being far more acceptable. The stigma is much less. I remember when I first worked in LCSC, it's like if any client walked in the door, like everyone was like running and scattering to make sure every door was closed and no one should see that. Wow. You know, and now all our clinics have waiting areas. Like everyone sits together. Like it, it's more, wow. I'm not saying there's still not this stigma, but there's right. definitely been a change. It's talked about in the schools. The schools work very closely with therapists. So we've definitely made progress in that area. Wow. You touched upon it and I want to bring it up. Post-COVID, why do you think there's a lot of issues post-COVID? So I can't I can't tell you exactly. Obviously, in general, we, we know in the world, uh, we, we there's been a lot of research on this, but um, when people are socially isolated, when people have a lack of structure in their lives, uh, it lends an opportunity to, you know, get involved in unhealthy behaviors. Um, and I think there was certainly an increase of, in things like, you know, addiction and technology and just a lot of, you know, even for the young children having a lot more time on their hands um, without the, um, the academic structure to their day. Um, obviously, and those who have less structure also have a lot more time to think. Um, and then it was very stressful on a lot of people being together in terms of the family dynamics, you know, and, and shell and bias. So a lot of affected relationships and affected kids who were exposed to those relationships on a, on a regular basis. Um, affect their ability to transition back and be successful. Like, you know, it's the phone didn't work for those or Zoom for those who have, you know, learning issues or ADHD and they fell behind and they came back and it was hard to get motivated and they were used to sort of doing their own thing. So it was, it was just, a, it was a significant change in a very, very short amount of time. Um, and of course, you know, when you have less uh, structure and less exercise and less feeling accomplished and less social interaction, that's going to affect self-esteem and anxiety and uh, people feel more depressed and more alone. People need people. Um, so, you know, that certainly, you know, would affect. Um, so how do we stop the addiction? and make it less known for mental health issues. You know, addiction is a very, very serious problem. And obviously we're seeing it a lot more. There's a lot more education. Um, you know, there's a lot more uh, openness and willingness to talk about it in our communities. Um, and I think that awareness, I mean, some organizations have done a wonderful job like Amudim uh, and other such organizations uh, to help uh, people become more aware. Um, and I think part of that is really understanding where it starts from. And obviously, a lot of people are using addiction to numb their emotional pain, uh, and their difficulties. And we know that certain personalities or people who have certain traumatic experiences uh, turn towards other substances to numb or escape their emotional pain. Um, uh, I think also things that like access, you know, are, are, are a big problem as well, you know, and, you know, people it's talked about enough, but, you know, 
when you're in shul and there are kedushim and there's alcohol flowing or there's simchas and there's alcohol flowing and you know the next generation is seeing this um you know and i think listen it's not black and white and obviously you can't say okay let's just get rid of all you know ban all alcohol um i think i think people we need to continue to educate and i think the leaders of our community have to take a stance and when i say the leaders i mean the rabbanim and the rashivas um really have to you know understand the impact um and and the other is 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 that really an avenue where people can go go for help and and that's what makes it difficult as well is that even if someone becomes you know addicted to their phone and content and, and again i know we've done a better job of giving hotlines and their organizations out there making aware that you know whether it's guard guard your eyes and where you can get help but i think educating rabbeim and teachers and mechanchem and you know really helping them understand what are the signs and be knowing what to ask because i think if we can address it as a young age i think it could prevent and and a lot of times it's not identifying that those who need help and getting them the help early on you know once an addiction takes its life of its own that's a whole different ball game you know if we can get more prevention and early intervention and you know because a lot of it does come from mental health issues right if we can get early on and and also being again aware of um you know access and and uh you know what our what what our children, our teenagers start to see in our environment, um, you know, it, it does, it does uh, affect them. Um, and addiction runs in families. How do we teach the Rabbanim, the Mechanchim, and all of them, how do we teach them about it? So again, I, I give a lot of credit to the Klal. I think we've, we've come away. I mean, you have, whether it's Torah Masora or Anguda, um, you know, I, I think in more the, depends where, I think the modern Orthodox world is a little bit more um, aware and, and learned on these topics. Right. Uh, I think we're a little bit behind them in the more of the Haredi right world. But th- there's definitely a movement where there are um, workshops and gatherings and where, you know, to, to, to teach and educate um, the school personnel and the rabbis and the rishis, not all of them are jumping at those opportunities. So right. I think a lot of opportunities are there. There's a wealth of information, and we can give that over. But a lot of them are still hesitant. They're not ready. They're in denial. They think it's a big issue, and then they're stuck in the issue, and then they're looking for help. You know, because right. they have one of their mispalim, or they're, they're seeing kids in their environment. Um, so I think, I think it's to continue to use the, uh, organizations of the cloud as an opportunity to, um, educate again, where we were 10 years ago now is, is, is worlds. And, and as I mentioned, some of them, and I'm probably missing many of the organizations, whether it's Amudim has done a, you know, wonderful job, but even, you know, Agoda and Torah Masora have, have certainly made different groups that are focusing on the needs of uh, the schools and the teachers and the rabbinim about communicating these issues. 
Um, do we have to do more? Sure. But um, I think, I think we're, we're definitely heading in that direction. I just wish more people would jump on these opportunities, more rub, you know, that people are overwhelmed. People are busy in life. You know, they have their own families, their own jobs. They're trying to make a parnasa. You know, it's a very quick world out there. You know, they get home at night. You know, they just, people need downtime. People need their own outlets. People have their own, you know, personal goals. And, you know, and, and the Rabbanim are overwhelmed as it is. So you tell them, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to come to a, a lecture on a series about addiction and identifying addiction and red flags of addiction and, you know, how to, you know, get some of the right help. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. So I, I get it. But it's not like you're going to ask Ramadis Solomon to come to a lecture on addiction at this point. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not well enough. To, right. But, um, you know, he did hold up Yisrael for years on a lot of issues that were not talked about and not addressed. Um, and, and I think he did bring them to the forefront. Um, so, yeah. yeah and and I, I think it's something that has to continue to be talked about. I think people, again, there's a lot of denial that people think we're overreactive. Um, but it's destroying families. And, it, and it's, a, it's a serious problem. Now, we have lots of other problems, too. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not saying this is the problem of our generation. You know, I actually have a lot of interest in, as you know, in parenting. And right. that's a big uh, area of interest for me, where I think I actually tried to put together an organization to give parents more guidance and help, you know, on how to bring up their kids. Because I think a lot of times that's where we need to start. Right. Um so how is the book doing? Um, well, it is translated into three languages. Wow. Chinese, Farsi, and Japanese. Um, how did you get to those languages? Um, that was through the publisher, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it, it, it's, in our community, it's selling a lot. You know, um, is it selling... You know, and I think it, it's such a valuable resource. Obviously, I'm going to say that because I wrote right. it. And it's really helpful for every parent. Um, but um, I, I would like to get it more out there. I just don't have the, to do that today, you, you know, publishers aren't good marketers. No. So it's really you. It's like social media and posting and obviously where I speak and bring, you know, um, but I, I don't have the time and I don't really want to spend my life marketing my book, honestly, and to pay for marketing. Uh, but it's, it's definitely, uh, I've got amazing feedback. Um, it's, it's a real, uh, I could say here, it's a real, it's, it's a lot of work to get through the book. It's a very easy read. People say it's a very enjoyable read, but it's really looking at yourself and, becoming more aware of your own emotions, your own reactions, using a lot of different skills and strategies to change the way you're interacting with your family and yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes, takes a lot of, a lot of work to do that. Um, so on the one hand it's being successful. On the other hand, like anything you put out there, you know, I'd love to see it even right. more. Um, but but I'm, I'm thankful Tasha that I even have the opportunity. And I always remind myself like, Every person who it helps 
and you know reads it or has some insight or you know that's that's huge one person you know is so significant so how big is the book the book is about two, 250 pages oh. uh here it is uncontrollable <laughs> child um it is um oh actually uh, about 200 pages excuse me i should know that off the top of my head right it's been a while since i looked at it um uh, they actually that you have a word count um yeah the shirts are very you know they if you go over um, that word count i gotta cut and cut and cut and cut and cut so they're very specific about uh, how much you're allowed to put in um, but even, you know, getting getting them to publish the book. I mean, they're a pretty big publisher, so it was, it was a big deal. Um, and uh, it's also been, the Ford was written by Dr. Judy Beck, who is, uh, runs the Beck, president of the Beck Institute. And president of the Beck Institute, and she's the daughter of uh, Aaron Beck, who developed cognitive behavioral therapy. So she loved the book, and she wrote a Ford, which was pretty incredible. She doesn't usually do that, um, yeah. a relationship with her. So... It's it's uh, it's been successful, and I, I hope that it will continue to reach more. Maybe someone will listen to this today and pick it up, and it'll, you know they'll gain some some insight and help. How long did it take you to write it? Before meaning to the write the process. The process was about two years. You know, from the oh, time. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, but I based on a lot of lectures and things that I were was already giving, and um, I worked together very closely with a writer just because I wanted, you know, I know how to write, but I wanted someone to, you know, to bring it out. It's their talent. You know, I'm, right. my talent is, you know, having the information and organizing information. So we worked together. That was really super helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I would say the actual writing probably year and a half. And then there's the editing stages. I mean, it's a lot. Right. It's like three rounds of editing. It's, it's intense. Um, people ask me, what's your next book coming out? I'm like, <laughs> I was just going to ask you, when's the next book coming out? <laughs> I, I, you know, I've thought about it. Um, the reason why I put out this book is I thought there was real need. Obviously, right. I think to write about or that I think would be helpful. Um, but right now, I'm involved in so many other things that it, you don't it, have the time. I don't have the time, and it has to be something that I again I feel it could be really helpful and meaningful. I'm not just looking to write or put out another book. You know, I right, want it to be. Uh, I've had some ideas related to this topic too, um, but I, I do plan at some point to do a revision. But I was thinking of putting out like a um, like a workbook for therapists to do uh, like groups for parenting and parent oh, wow. training. Uh, I thought that would be something that would be useful. It's been popping in my mind in and out. I'm just can't go there right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the IFP PHP going, and then we'll we'll take it from there. <laughs> We will be right back after words from our sponsor. Do you have a business or organization that you are looking to promote? Are you tired of paying top dollar only to have your ad thrown on page 225 when no one sees it? Well, at the Muncie Mavasar, your business is our business. We won't let that happen. Our highly skilled graphics department can help make you that perfect ad and our talented layout team will find the perfect spot so your ad never gets lost among hundreds of others. Call us today to reserve your ad, 845-835-3399 or send an email to sales at muncimavasar.com and our sales team will respond promptly. 
The Muncie Mavasser, Muncie's premier Jewish newspaper. Got everything you want and nothing you don't. Visit us online at www.munsimavasser.com. And we are back on the Unique Perspective show. Where can my audience find this book and where can they find out more about um, Matis Miller? Um, okay, thank you so much. So um, they could go into theuncontrollablechild.com. Um, on the website, if you want to put that in your notes, uncontrollablechild.com. On the website, well, so you can get the book anywhere. I mean, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, you, it's actually in local libraries. You can get oh, it there. Wow. Yeah, sure. Um, most of the libraries in the area have it. Um, and uh, there's actually online, there's also, uh, it was put out in, in audio as well. So if you're not a reader, uh, there was a, uh, there's a professional uh, reader who did the book. I also, myself, um, on the site, you'll see a link to, a master class where I actually teach the content of the book live with slides and videos and um, which is about 12, 15 hours of content you could purchase. That's an automated online parenting wow. class, um, which is another project. Um, and you can learn about me there. You can learn about me also on my uh, practice website, which is um, cbtofnj.com. That's catboy Tom O-F-N-J. Okay. Com. It's my practice website. You can learn more about me there as well. Um, and I'm social media on LinkedIn and Instagram, you know, uh, you can follow there also. So um, one, one quick question you brought, you just brought up social media. What do you think about the whole social media aspect and mental health? Yeah, I actually wrote about that uh, for the from uh, paper at the Hamadia a while back. You can probably find it online in terms of technology and its impact and social media and its impact. Um, so, you know, just very briefly, you can check out the article. But um, yeah, it, I mean, even from a secular standpoint, we know that it's, you know, when any, uh, any sort of interaction or stimulation is releasing dopamine in your brain. Um, and we've come to a place, just to give you an example, actually, High Life Fund reached out to me. They said, we want a, a video clip. Could you give us a 30-second video clip uh, related to the war, some information for parents? So I said, sure. You know, um, I couldn't do less than a minute and 30. I sent them the clip. Wow. They got it to 35 seconds. They took like just bits and pieces. They said, no one can, people can't listen right. to more. 30 seconds of a clip, like you're, they're gone. You know, I know if somebody, if I send a voice note to someone that's over like 20 seconds, they're not listening to it. And I think the reason is, is because our brains have trained to get release stimulation of dopamine from such fast, um, you know, pieces of flashing light and information and that, that our brain, that really affects us because when we don't get that same level of stimulation or dopamine input, our, our brain has to sort of create some balance or homeostasis in our brain that it's not enough. We need more and we need more to get to, you know, it could be 15 years ago, someone would smile at you and say, how are you doing? And that would give you a release of dopamine. Right. It's like, you know, you need that fast clip. So you, you think about that and then you're exposed to all that. And then you have to sit in front of a Gemara. Like, how are you doing that? Right. Um, because our brains and, and, and to get enjoyment or stimulation, you got to work hard. You got to stay focused. 
So I think forget about all the other problems with it and exposing. I think it, it's really impacting our brains and, and social media itself. They're trained. I mean, they're, they have psychologists on, on the other side. <laughs> right. Or figure out exactly how to get you dependent and addictive uh, and, and keep you looped in, that you keep wanting more stimulation. And it affects our relationships, just sitting and just talking, being with people. I and mean, we're lucky we have Shabbos that we shut off. Mm -hmm. um, but imagine those who don't. Um, so I think social media, obviously, it has its benefits. Like we talked about, it could get messages out to move right. people in a good place. But it is really impacting our ability to stay focused, our ability to connect to people, our ability to learn. Um, so there, there are concerns out there, that's for sure. Do you see a lot of patients, meaning do you see a lot of patients that come in because of the, so the social media aspect? I think people come in because of social media, but I think they're turning to social media as a way of detachment, uh, dissociation, disconnection to give them. There are people who live on social media because they can't, that's the only way they can have, like they can live in this fake world of right. social interaction while they're so isolated and alone. And I think they're using it as a maladaptive, unhealthy way of coping, which leads to dependence, addiction, and then doesn't allow them to work hard to improve their lives because right. they could uh -huh. phone and binge watch and do all these things, which decreases motivation, leads to depression, they feel you know, less energy, which is impacting their ability to move on. So I think people are struggling, have something very accessible that's not bad per se. It's not, you know, alcohol, it's not heroin. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, I do see a lot of people struggle. Wow. Wow. Matis, thank you so much. I, I know I took so much time out of your clock, your busy schedule, but wow, a wealth of knowledge here. Thank you so much. I have to say, you know, for me, it was really special. I know we didn't talk about our relationship so much, going all the way back to the, those times in Camp Simcha. And I could still, still picture you as a little boy. Now, I wasn't your big boy, but I was a bit older than you. <laughs> you were um, definitely taller than me, much taller. <laughs> uh, but I just got to watch you on your journey, you know, uh, and, and things weren't always uh, easy for you. And you were, you were an inspiration. You still are an inspiration. And... Uh, you definitely brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and you still do, you know, with your infectious smile and your insight and your, you know, despite your struggles, your love for life. So um, we had good times together. We had good times. and, we, and definitely it was, had, we definitely had amazing times and it, it's been a long time since we saw each other. Where really, it's been like three years. You should really get to see each other once. But um, we're both busy and... Um, I guess that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, you, you do amazing work for the cloud and that's that's really what this is all about bringing people on who do so much for the cloud and and do amazing stuff for the cloud and and they're unique and that I think you personify unique. Thank you so much, Vidalib. So you owe me one. Got to see each other soon. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right. Okay, bye-bye. You have just listened to the latest episode of the Unique Perspective Show, broadcasted live on Hako Radio, powered by the Munson Mavasar. 
The Unique Perspective Show is hosted by Yehuda Blonder, who can be contacted through Hako Radio by sending an email to info at hakoradio.com. This show and many others can be found in the Hako Radio archive system on our website and mobile apps, and can also be found on all major podcasting services.